Well, blood for this is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Dr. Andrea Feigl. Andrea, are you ready to do this? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me this morning. Yeah, excited to have you on. Dr. Andrea is a health financing innovator. She's a health economist, scientific advisor, and she is the CEO of the Health Finance Institute, working to inspire health today for wealth tomorrow. Andrea, again, excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. The three questions in one. That's how I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, so I'm a health economist. I'm also a dancer. So um, I have these two sides to me. I'm a very rational thinker, but I'm also a very creative person. So these two things have kind of like kept the balance in my life. And I try to engage in both as I can. But I always looked at my life of like not um, separating my my job from what I like to do is always try to be very passionate about the things that I do too, do too, do 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 do, <laughs> and um, basically um, try and see how I can make a positive impact um, with the talents and opportunities that I've been given. So when I stumbled upon public health when I was in my early 20s, I had this wonderful internship in Washington, D.C., where I'm actually based right now. Um, I fell in love with um, policymaking at, at the high level and at how that can really impact um, populations on the ground. Um, so um, my journey then has been that um, I did a PhD in health, global health and health economics, really looking at the economic burden um, of chronic diseases. So heart disease, um, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, COPD, so lung disease and mental health. And what we can basically do with the limited resources that we have or spending our resources better to make a make a change. So just to give you an understanding about the size of this issue. So we like countries lose about 5% of their GDP each year because they don't invest properly in things that we know that work when it comes to prevention, access and adherence. <clears throat> So the size of the 2008 economic, um, the market uh, crash was about, you know, 5% of the GDP was wiped out globally. So we're accepting that just as a status quo because we don't do the right things in chronic diseases. So when I was younger and a bit more naive, I thought that analyzing and putting out that evidence was enough. So I was involved in a couple of UN high level meetings, um, especially UN General Assembly, Assembly meeting specifically on a certain topic. There was one on chronic diseases in 2011, in 2014, and in 2018. And the numbers were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of the economic burden, but nobody was actually doing anything about it. So I said to myself, well, you know, what can I do? And I started and founded the Health Finance Institute um, and with the mission to broker public-private partnerships to advocate for and find novel financing solutions to address the chronic disease burden, particularly in underserved communities. And again, not a number, only 3% of international donations, development assistance for health, go to 80% of the disease burden. And so again, there's the inequality in terms of what we, how we spend an, um, the, the, our money on health, generally in high and in low income countries. And then there is sort of this disparity between where the burden is and where the suffering is and where the money actually goes. So we're basically trying to address both. One of those small problems. 
Andrea. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how I, I was, like it. <laughs> I, I, I was reading up on you and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't wait because I, I love thinking about big problems and that's all fine and well, because to your point, we can be very aware and we could put money towards it, but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to have the impact that we're desirous of or that we want to have. So you 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 mentioned three things that that governments, communities are failing to do. One of them was adherence. What mm-hmm. what were the others? Access and prevention. So for example, for diabetes, right? You want to catch diabetes really early. Preferably, we want to even prevent diabetes. And there's something called primary and secondary prevention. Um, and it's better for your health, better for your longevity, better for your social life, but also better for the economy if you catch it early, right? So you want to, firstly, you want to prevent. And we know a lot about prevention when it comes to diabetes, right? It comes to, you know, regular, you know, measurement of your, of your vitals, you know, you exercise, healthy diet, um, and so on and so forth. And, um, and then there's, you know, if you were to be pre-diabetic or, you know, at the beginning of diabetes, you want to basically act early to manage or potentially even reverse that disease, right? So you have countries like Malaysia where 60% of diabetes gets diagnosed in the ER. Wow. That means people, people present with vision issues, they're starting to lose sight, they um, have their numbness in the limbs, they need to get amputated, and about like the majority of the spend sometimes up to 80 percent of the spending for diabetes in that country happens in tertiary care costing up to 20 percent of their health spending and that's exactly lopsided to what you see like in you know in more um, western especially western european countries where more of the money is um, spent in primary and secondary care and you have really early um, detection so that's sort of you want to prevent the disease and if the disease occurs you want to make sure there's access to diagnosis and access to treatment but that's not enough right if if and when um, persons are living with a chronic disease, you also want to make sure there's adherence to it, right? People need to be able to take time off work, to see the doctor, to access the medical care, to adhere financially um, to the treatment regimen that they have. We did a study in Armenia. Um, we first only, uh, that was funded by the World Diabetes Foundation and um, conducted by the um, Danish Red Cross and they basically gave education screening and also um, uh, drug-based treatment to, to elderly and vulnerable populations living with type, type 2 diabetes. And then we looked at, you know, how much did the program cost and was there financial return? And there was a, almost like a 2x financial return. And then we said, how much does it actually cost for people to adhere to that diet that is being prescribed to manage their diabetes, right? And we realized for them to actually switch to fresh fruits and vegetables in the quantities that were being described compared to the regular diet, it was twice as expensive as the drugs that were given out through the program. Mm. So how can people adhere to that if they're not, you know, so anyway, so that's where their adherence comes in. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by, by behavior change. I work in personal finance and I can't help but wonder or think that there's a lot of similarities. Do people understand what they're supposed to be doing with their money? 
And then how do we actually put it into practice? How do we help people avoid getting into a lot of debt as opposed to helping them get out of debt? So mm-hmm. the access adherence prevention, those three things that, that, that really resonates and, and, and makes sense with me. Um, and these are huge, some- these are huge problems. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's there's an issue called like not issue. There's something called choice architecture, right? Um, in terms of the choice architecture, needs to be in a sense needs to be designed in a in a way that the healthy choice is the easy choice. And that starts from, you know, the way that fruits and vegetables are present, represented um, in a supermarket um, to, um, you know, incentives that insurance, for example, gives you. There's a great program that comes out of South Africa. It's called Vitality. And they basically have like an airline mile system. They have silver, gold, platinum status based on how much you exercise and how much, you know, healthy produce you you purchase. You then get rewards, like even like, you know, lowering of your premiums and things like that. And that actually really, really works. And it's increased health like it improves health but it also um saves um the employer as well as the insurance company but i think at the at the population level be it in emerging but as well as developed economies we're really far far away from that some others in infectious disease area have even said there's like a structural violence <laughs> when it comes to you know the health the, you know access to health in various communities because the social the social determinants of health so about so i teach global health financing at georgetown university and um at the beginning we talk about you know what's a health system that's what's the role of a healthcare system right and we often have sickness systems right we often have systems that deal with people once they're sick or we prevent them from getting sick at best but we don't really look at maintenance and creation of health and the interesting thing is what that means is about 80 percent and that's a study that's i think published in health affairs 80 percent of health is actually generated outside the healthcare system right so the social determinants, the structural determinants, you know, the communities, your zip code have a much greater bear where you live, how you live, have a much greater bearing on your health status than necessarily the quality of your healthcare system to begin with. So, you know, and, and I guess the parallel to finance there would also be right. Um, I think there's like studies that show and you, that's where your expertise is that in that area, but um, basically like your the, the, the wealth of the parents of your four closest friends in high school or something have a greater like determinant, like, have a great greater impact on how you will do financially than, you know, the quality of your school, for example. So again, that, that social environment has a massive impact. And, um, and then, um, and how do you nudge or how do you change that or how do you take that into account um, to then basically change behaviors, but also, you know, it's, it's, it's an interplay between individual versus environmental determinants of, of health. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fascinating. I think uh, to a degree, it is sort of like a dance where, mm. you know, you're, <laughs> where, where we are. At me yeah. as an individual, I'm 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 dancing between. I understand that I need to balance my long term health with my desire to put delicious food in my mouth or to consume alcohol, or my desire to stay on the couch or my desire to be healthy enough to play with my kids. It's 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 all kind of a dance. Um, when and and it also makes a lot of sense to me that you want to bring these public private uh, partnerships together 
because to your point, um, I think that there is such a huge opportunity with employers and insurance companies to be working together to reduce costs. So there's a business case for it. Uh, and that's where we are spending so much of our time and getting so many of our benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love the I love the dance analogy, right? And I think I mean, I think that for those of us who work in health, we assume that health is the most important thing, but it often isn't for others, right? Yeah. Um, so just a, a fun factoid to share when we looked at alcohol, um, there was a really fantastic study 2018, it came out and it said, um, there's really no single amount of alcohol that is beneficial to your health. And that was the first study that now had more data because there was this like, you know, oh, it's good for you cardiovascular for heart health. But whatever it does there, the cardioprotective out uh, effects are not outweigh are not outweighing the negative effects it has on cancers and everything else so but then we correlated um you know drinking with um uh we correlated um drinking with with income and um women who drank a glass or two a day had a much higher income and earning potential throughout their lifetime than women who didn't drink hmm. and so so even when we control for a couple of factors right so it comes down to they're probably networking, they're probably engaging, they're probably like furthering their business relationships which is absolutely critical, right? To to um to to climb up a career ladder, what have you. And so, you know, from a health perspective, you shouldn't drink, but from other other air, you know, from other perspectives, you you should perhaps. But then, you know, when it comes to the workplace um, and, and insurance and an incentivization of healthy behavior, in the past we looked at um I looked at data from McKesson who engaged in this vitality program. We looked at data from 50,000 people and even just engaging once per month with the program, be that going to the gym once, buying healthy grocery once a month, had substantive positive health effects in terms of um, body mass index, blood pressure, um, and other health related outcomes and also saved over a thousand dollars per person per year so times you know fifty thousand for those that are engaging versus those who are not engaging you can save millions of dollars as a as a corporation but also creating positive health impact um and that those savings were actually above and beyond the like basically subtracting um the cost of the program in and of itself and this is sort of where we look at you know if we know that there's already an insurance system that exists and we know what can be done to improve programs. You can set up financial instruments like social impact bonds or blended finance instruments that say, well, if this outcome happens, then only then insurance company or government will you have to pay. And we find investors, they get a different return based on how well the program performs, right? So it basically helps, you know, those enrolled in a program to to actually really achieve certain outcomes it helps in m&e culture and it also puts um the owners on a, on a program actually performing and i i'm gonna say something that might be a bit controversial but um you know like you know the ministry of health or those public servants that our ministries of health are they being rewarded for actually creating better health outcomes right are we you know are we aligning health outcomes in health systems with certain payment structures because i think if we did we would see um you know we would actually see the, the amenable burdens or the burden that we can do something about 
really go down. And because we see health as a public good, as it should be, we shy away of using economics like incentive structures or using finance around, you know, how do we have efficient spending, right? We're like, oh, no, we can't do that because it's about health. And I had the same, you know, in 2007, when I started as an intern here in DC, I had the same idea, like, oh, my God, you know, economics is bad. And like, you know, each health, you just, you just need to spend it, you know, you should just spend money to make people, you know, better. And then I was evaluating, I was put in charge, I was like, you know, wide eyed, young and, 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 and eager in 2007. And I was told to like evaluate three programs in three Latin American countries that was supported by a high-income government. It was a $5 million project to improve maternal and child health. And every six months, they changed the indicator. They didn't know where the money was being spent. They didn't know which communities were being served. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous, right? Like, A, we're not we're doing those who are supposed to be being served a disservice because we don't even know who we're serving. And secondly, money is being spent. And if we don't track it well, then, you know, what are we spending it for? And money is not going to increase or, you know, it's, it's wasteful, right? So it really the, the application of economics and incentives isn't because we say we want to ration it's more about saying we want to really optimize our spending because we care so i think that's that's something forgotten sometimes forgotten in this dialogue around economics and aligning you know incentives with outcomes because at the end of the day we we benefit both socially and economically if we invest in the right things but we only know if we map, if we try, if we track it and we measure it, and if we design programs to that effect, I think that that's really, really well said. It makes perfect sense to me, and so I hope that we're moving more towards that not being a controversial thing, um, because I think it's really, 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 really important. And I know that I don't like, you know giving something money and then not having any idea where it's going. That goes for my taxes, my nonprofit donations, whatever it might be. I want to know that the things I've decided to put money towards is actually having the impact that we're hoping that it happens or it has. Exactly, exactly. And and there was a CEO roundtable hosted by one of the top uh, 10 pharma companies. And we did talking about, um, they're talking about the quality of healthcare data. And not my words, in their words, they were saying we're in the 1950s when it comes to health data. And sadly, that is true. So we have so many advances in so many other industries, but we track so little about health and health economics. And this is also where we're trying to make an impact. And something, um, and the other, the other area where I think we're currently doing ourselves a disservice is in impact investing. And in general, like um, ESG measurement um, when it comes to health impact. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, said health is a macro critical issue. Now, what does it mean? It means that if you don't invest in your health sector, your entire economy is going to suffer and vice versa. If you do invest in health, the benefits aren't just in the health sector. The benefits are beyond, are reapable beyond the healthcare sector. Again, as health economists, is not a surprise, but for many people, they really had to experience the pandemic to see this. So there's this trend of like, you know, most of the new money into in health is going to come from the private sector. If we like it or we don't like it, it's just a fact. And if we see the growth of spending in health and then you know in the in an impact especially impact investing in health it's an almost exponential growth curve but the curve like in in the public sector is 
at best slightly linear upwards in high income countries and sometimes even downwards in low income countries. So you want to really look at optimizing the way this money is being invested. But we don't have a standardized way of measuring health impact when it comes to VCs, when it comes to pension funds, when it comes to pharma companies and all of that, right? So something we're working on is an idea called the health impact credit, where we're trying to basically set up a standard and say, what is health impact? You know, how are companies performing against the first, the second, or third version of, of an index like that? Can we relate it back to the bottom line? And can we basically create a trading space so, so that we can standardize investments in health? And can we have the McDonald's and the, um, you know, whatever oil companies buy health impact credits from the Modernas or the Whole Foods or whatnot? So um, because there we see a real opportunity to align, you know, both the positive and, ex and negative externalities of health that's being created or lost to actually the bottom line. So, so it becomes less of an issue of begging governments to do something, but rather a, you know, something that just makes sense from an economic perspective, because we're actually um, looking at the real cost or the real benefit of the health that's being created by companies. I love it. That makes all the sense in the world. Well, keep going, Andrea. I'm done. <laughs> it sounds like it, 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 it sounds like you're moving in the right direction and thank you so much for coming on where can people learn more about you and the health finance institute how can they get involved yeah um so i was just going to say we are actually looking for uh, two executive board members um especially um especially uh, women board members um so um you know if, if anyone is listening to this and said oh my god i want to get involved to make sure that we are financing um chronic diseases appropriately and reduce suffering and in, in increase economic well-being and i want to be actively involved you know do reach out um you'll find us on our website healthfinanceinstitute.org and um, you're very active on linkedin as well and um you know uh email is andrea at healthfinanceinstitute.org um so i look forward to to hearing from you excellent well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dr. Andrea your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to healthfinanceinstitute.org and check out the massive problems that she and they are working on solving. Uh, the opportunity for you to get involved, get in touch, and I'll link all those in the notes of the show. Thanks again, Andrea. Thank you so much. And until next time, remember, do your part by doing your best. <laughs>